When we were living in Mansfield uh, several years ago, I met a man named Bill uh, while he and I were both uh, using a Starbucks as our office. I could tell uh, Bill immediately was a great salesman. Uh, he had a, uh, that kind of magnetic personality and that great smile that all good salespeople need. Uh, he was warm and friendly, and he seemed really interested in the church that we were planting, and he asked lots of good questions. But as I interacted with him on a number of different occasions, I couldn't tell if Bill wanted something from me or whether Bill wanted something for me. Have you ever met somebody like that? That's a person about whom you wonder sometimes, are they being nice to me because they really enjoy me? Or are you just constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the sales pitch that's going to come on the other side of all of this softening you up so that they can really get something out of you, something from you? Well, unfortunately, that question that uh, describes some of our horizontal relationships, often we import into the way that we think about God. Naturally, I think that we assume that God must want something from us. If you're not a Christian this morning, perhaps you know enough about Christianity to think, uh, to lead you to believe that God exists in order to get something out of you, and that Christianity exists in order to take something from you. God wants your money, or your time, or your devotion. But even for Christians, this can be an easy trap to fall into. Maybe you wake up in the morning, and to the extent that you think about God— You think, what does God want me to do today? What does God want from me today? How does he want me to change? What can I do for God? We may wonder, is God more about giving something to me, for me? Or does he want something from me? Well, over the past two weeks, we've been listening in on Jesus' final prayer before he goes to the cross together with his 11 remaining disciples. And we've heard him in verses 1 through 5 pray for himself, that God would glorify him so that he could glorify his Father. And then he turns his attention towards his 11 disciples, and over the next next section he prays for them and for the needs that they'll face in the coming uh, days after his uh, resurrection. And now, remarkably, he turns his attention to you. Look at verse 20 again. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus looks down into history and he knows that as he sends his disciples out into the world to make disciples of all nations, that people will respond to that message with faith and believe in Jesus. And that that message will be passed down from generation to generation until it ultimately gets to you and to me, where someone tells us the message that Jesus gave his disciples about him and we trust in him. And so here we see Jesus praying, not for the people that are right there with him as he's praying this prayer for the first time, but praying for us, looking out into the future. So what does Jesus pray for when he prays for you? What does he want the Father to give you? And what I hope you'll see this today as we consider those questions is that uh, before God ever wants anything from you, he wants to give something to you. And there are two primary things that Jesus prays for here, that he prays for the Father to give you, that I want you to see. First, Jesus prays that God will give you unity. And secondly, he prays that God will give you proximity. Let's look at each of those together. 
First, Jesus wants you to have unity. Uh, Eric touched briefly on this last week as we looked at his prayer for the Jesus prayer for his, the 11 disciples, but I want to consider it again primarily because Jesus mentions it again. And so it's important, obviously an important topic to him that he would pray for this for us in, in addition to the disciples. And he actually prays for it twice in this passage. You may have noticed the, the, the structure that he uh, says, repeats twice, first in verse 21 and then in verse 23. <clears throat> he says in verse 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And then look again at 23. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. What's Jesus asking for here? He's not so much thinking here of a visible or a physical unity or merely that. Uh, Rather, he's asking God to give you and other believers throughout history the same mind that confesses the truth of the gospel, the same ultimate purpose of living your life for God and to honor him, the same desire to know Christ and to know as the one that the Father sent for you, In other words, what he's praying for is a deep spiritual unity that transcends the barriers of time and culture and and even language. It's the kind of unity that we heard Randy read from 1 Corinthians 12, where he uses that, Paul uses that image of the body that is tied together with many members, and when one suffers, the other suffers. Why? Because they're tied together in this unique whole. We see Jesus use these words to describe it. Uh, He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And he uses the Trinity, his relationship with the Father as a way, as an example to describe the kind of unity he's talking about, this sharing. But it's even more than just an example. The Trinity is more than just a, a model for the type of unity that we have. It's more than that. He says that they may also be in us. And so the, the, the Trinity really forms the foundation of the unity that we have together because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and the Father is in us and we are in the Father and we share that ultimate spiritual unity together. It's mysterious. It's difficult to describe and difficult to comprehend. But that's what Je- that is on Jesus' mind primarily as he goes before the Father to pray for you. Uh, we saw a picture of, of this kind of unity a few years ago uh, when Lisa and I took our boys to New York City for Liam's eighth birthday. People in New York are definitely uh, united physically, right? Uh, Eight million people live on Manhattan and about 10,000 acres. So to put that in perspective, uh, the population density is about 75,000 people per square mile. That number for Austin is 3,000 people per square mile. So it is a, people are tight together, packed together. But despite the physical proximity that they share, often you get the sense as you walk around New York that there are 8 million people living 8 million individual lives. You have headphones in and people are moving their way from one apartment to their office and back again and and you get on the subway and people aren't making eye contact because they're, again, they're listening to music or listening to podcasts and moving from one place to another. And uh, while they share this great physical proximity, they don't cross paths. They don't have this underlying unity. But one night while we were there, we bought tickets to go see the New York Yankees play the Houston Astros. Uh, We were secretly rooting for the Astros, and so we had to be a little bit uh, uh, inconspicuous. But my dad had taken me to Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium, when I was 10 years old, so we thought it'd be fun to continue the tradition. But the night of the game, as we made our way out towards the Bronx where the stadium is, uh, you begin to see a different sense of unity. You begin to see a few more Yankees hats, a few more Yankees t-shirts, Yankees jackets. 
And you get on a subway and what, in the middle of the city, you may not have seen any. Now you see a, a couple dozen. And then as you get closer and closer to the stadium, sure enough, you see everybody moving in the same direction, going to the same place, looking at the same things, talking about the same things, talking about the pitchers, talking about the, uh, who, who's up and who's going to play this way, whether, or whether they're going to win or not. And before you know it, you're in the crowd and you're moving in that direction and you can't go back. Because everybody is headed to the same place with the same vision and the same purpose and the same mission. It's that type of unity amongst 8 million people that live packed together that uh, undergirds this deep sense of connection and purpose. That's what, that's what Jesus is praying for, for you. That you would have that unity among you as you follow the same purpose, as you follow Christ as you move in the same direction with other believers, both here and around the world. But why does Jesus want you to have that kind of unity? Why does he pray for this for his church? He actually tells us twice why he wants this. At the end of verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, in the end of 23, he says it again, but he adds God's love into the equation. He says, I want this so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Genuine unity among Christians is, it sends a powerful message to a watching world about the love of God. When we love Jesus together, when we worship Jesus together, when we pray together, when we look to Christ in the midst of our difficulties together and encourage one another, when we move towards the same destination together, we are like a loudspeaker to the world crying out about God's love. And they will not long be able to fully resist the urge to say, who are these people? What are they looking at? Where are they going? Communicates a loud message about the love that God has for the world, a world that has even turned his back on him, that kind of unity communicates that to the watching world. Do you have that kind of unity in your life? Maybe some of you here think, no, I don't. I feel alone in this world. Maybe you're new to town, still looking for Christian connection and fellowship. Maybe you're looking for a new church. If so, know that this is at the top of Jesus' prayer list for you. Take heart that that if you are a believer, you already have that deep connection because you are in Christ and because Christ is in you with other believers. And Jesus is in the process of working that out in your life, tying you together with other Christians around you. This is what he wants for you. It's what he desires to give to you. It's what he is praying for for you. And the Father loves the world so much that he won't let his son's prayer go unanswered for you in that respect. So look out for the ways that he is answering that prayer. New connections, new friends, new people around you that he is knitting into your life in answer to that prayer. There may be others of you here who uh, seem to have unity with other Christians on the surface. Maybe you're a member here. Maybe you're married and you have a spouse with whom... Uh, it's, you, you have that, uh, a semblance of that unity, but this, that sense of physical unity is not matched by the kind of spiritual unity that Jesus is praying for here. You come to church, but nobody really knows the real you. You have things going on in your life that you really don't want anyone to know about, and so you keep them hidden away so nobody can see them. You may live in the same house with your spouse and physically together, but 
There's little joy, little real connection, little sense of common purpose surrounding the Lord with one another. You have few real friends or the kind of people who know what's really going on with you, who love you enough to when they ask you, how's it going? And you say, ah, it's, everything's fine, we're good. That they'll, be, they'll say, no, 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 I, I want to know how you're really doing. Tell me. That's the kind of unity that Jesus wants for you. And you need to know that Jesus is praying for you, too. He's praying that that, 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 type, that type of uh, hidden life will be broken and that you will be really and genuinely connected to other Christians around you who love you, who cherish you, who value you, as God loves and cherishes and values you as well. And so expect God to answer that prayer in your life. He wants to show the world that he loves them. And so he will do that for you. So what does God want for you? What is Jesus praying for for you? He wants you to have unity. He wants you to have unity with other believers, a deep spiritual and abiding unity. But Jesus wants something else for you that I want that he asks his father for here that I don't want you to miss. Jesus prays for proximity. He prays for proximity. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Hear that again. I want the people you have given me to be with me wherever I am. Jesus desires for you to be with him. Isn't that astounding? The Son of God is about to go to the cross to be crucified. And this is his last prayer that his disciples will hear before he goes to be arrested and condemned and sentenced to death. And he is going to that cross to pay for your sins and for, to pay for my sins. And yet the last thing on his lips is, the sinner that is sending me to the cross I want them to be with me. And in fact, that is the reason why he is going to the cross. Because our sin keeps us from being able to be with him. And so Jesus, as as he considers and contemplates the pain of the cross, says, God, know that I want them to be with me, and that's why I'm going to suffer this painful death, because I love them, and because you love them, and because I want them to be with me. And notice why he wants you to be near him. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus has something he wants to show you, which is why he wants you near to him. He has something he wants your eyes to see. He wants you to see into the very heart of God himself. He wants you to see his glory. Later in his life, the same John who wrote down this prayer would get a glimpse of how the Father would answer this prayer when, he, when Jesus shows him the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. He says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of Jesus, the Lamb, will be the only, night that, the only light that we need on that day. And Jesus wants you to see that glory and experience that joy. One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Rudy. 
It's also the, one of the movies I can't get through without crying, I have to admit. So it's a story of, uh, maybe you've seen it, it's a story of Rudy Rudier, who's a small and tough uh, blue-collar kid who walked on to the University of Notre Dame fighting Irish football team in the 1970s. And uh, all through the movie, his dad uh, doesn't really believe that he's on the football team. Uh, despite the bruises and the cuts and all the, uh, the, the broken stuff that he has when he comes back to uh, home for Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, they, they, he says, look, I promise I get this because I practice with these beasts that are tackling me all day. He said, nah, nah, you're not really on the football team. And over the course of the movie, he's offering his dad his free tickets that he gets by being part of the practice squad. He said, Dad, you've got to come down to South Bend and see a game because uh, there's nothing like it. And the dad is always saying, you know what, I've got, I've got my TV at home. You know, it's this big and it's black and white and it's fuzzy, but it's, it's enough for me. I'm content with that. Well, finally, his senior year, last game, Rudy gets to dress out for the game. And so he convinces his mom and dad, hey, come, please come down to South Bend. I'm going to be on the team. I'm going to be on the sidelines, but I'll have a jersey on. And so they finally acquiesce, and they get on the bus and go down to South Bend, and they get off the bus, and he walks in, and the dad walks into the stadium and walks through the tunnel, and he looks out, and he sees the real field, green, and the lines painted on it, and the teams on the sidelines, and the crowd cheering, and he looks at the field, and he says, this is the most beautiful sight my eyes have ever seen. He looked at it his whole life through his TV screen. He sees the real thing, and he says, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Friends, our world today is filled with all kinds of visual delights. Everywhere we turn, people are trying to capture our eyes and keep them looking and staring and scrolling at the next visual spectacle that they want to show us. Little ads that pop up on your screen or billboards you drive past or the latest epic superhero movie or the -the over-the-top halftime shows or cat videos or now the metaverse. It goggles that you put on that will eliminate all of the vision in your life except for what the highest bidder will pay for you to see. And let me let you in on a secret. The people who pay for those ads and pay for, put those spectacles in front of you, they want something from you desperately. They want your money. They want your affection. They want your loyalty. And they know that the longer they have your eyes, the longer they will have your soul. They know that what Jesus said is true, that the eye is the lamp of the body, and that whatever shines through it shines into your soul. And it has the power to shape your affections and behavior. And so I want you to ask, what what fills your vision on a daily basis? What captures your sight? If you were to pull up an app of the screen time of all the things that your eyes had seen throughout the course of a day, what would be on that list? And what would, how many minutes and how many hours would be on that time? What are the things you just can't pull your eyes away from? Christians, we should be aware that what our eyes take in, that they have this soul-shaping power on us. But this, this verse ought to be a constant reminder to us. This prayer of Jesus ought to be a constant reminder to us that Jesus has a vision that is far more real, far more delightful, far more satisfying to show you than anything else that can capture your attention here and now. And he wants you to see it, not because he wants something from you, but because he loves you and he wants you to have joy.
He wants you to see it because he knows that it's the only vision that can ultimately satisfy you. He wants you to see it because he knows that it's the only vision that you won't ever be able to look away from, that you won't ever need to look away from, that will truly be the most beautiful thing your eyes have ever seen. He wants you to be with him wherever he is, not to take from you, but to give to you. And he was willing to pay the price of his own life so that you could have it. Friends, before God ever wants something from you, he gives generously to you. And Jesus continues to pray this prayer before his Father right now for you. That his Father would give you unity with other believers, that he would show the world the love that he has for you, that he would one day fulfill Jesus' desire to bring you near enough to see him. And be assured that God will answer the prayers of his Son for your good and for his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that so often our vision is filled uh, with so many things that distract, that uh, occupy us, that even awe us. But Lord, there is much more to see. And even though we don't see Jesus now with our physical eyes, we long for the day when we will. And we know that it will come to pass, not because we give so much to you, but because you will listen to the voice of your son and you will fulfill his prayer to bring us near to him and reveal to us his glory. Lord, help us today to move forward towards that vision. Help us to long to see it. Help us to cultivate it in our own hearts and give us joy. It can only come from beholding Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.